This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him that he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who are incarcerated here. My name is Anthony, and I'm in the studio here with Sky. Hi. And we are starting season two. Yay. Whoa. Hopefully, yeah. people like it enough for us to start a second season. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, there's somebody there to listen to our second season. Just, just one person would be fine. Hey, mom. <laughs> I know. Oh, so then we'd have like two. Yeah. Because then my mom would also listen. Yeah, yeah. Aw. Aw, moms. <laughs> Thanks, moms. Well, I don't really have... Ah, my inmate's a little complicated. Okay. So, I who are you talking about today? I'm talking about Mildred Louise Knox. Ooh, Mildred she's Knox. She's not as complicated, but she's one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've got kind of a historically uh, important one, if what I tell you what is... What I I Now accurate. I can't... There's no way that I could, like read mine knowing you're being all cryptic and historically oh. important so maybe you should go first <laughs> okay all right so today i'm going to be talking about harry atwell sylvie also known as john zisco number 6836 and the sources i use of course the idaho daily statesman his inmate file and there's this great article from april 2011 in idaho magazine titled whiskey and women how three state pen inmates made the first idaho song recording I just gave it away, but yeah, this is a fascinating Whiskey and story. women. Yes. Well, and, and mine is as a little bit musically themed as well. Oh. So I think we accidentally matched up again, which hey. is not the first time that we've done that. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about actually recreating their song and including that recording at some point in this episode. Yay. I new... won't be a part of that because I was oh. just telling him I have no musical ability, wow. but I will clap for you, oh, support okay. you, whatever you need, <laughs> podcasting co-host. All right. Thanks, guy. <laughs> All right. So Harry Sylvie was born April 17th, 1918 in Morgan County, Missouri. And this is right in central Missouri, and mm-hmm. it's named after revolutionary war hero Daniel Morgan, who's the one of the many inspirations for Mel Gibson's character, Colonel Benjamin Martin, in the 2000 film The Patriot. Did you ever see that? I never did. Oh, man. I mean, I probably would like it, but I think, when did it come out? 2000? Yeah. I was like seven, and it's oh, rated man. R, and Mormons and the rated R movies. Oh, I broke that mold violent. a long time ago, but... yeah. It's it's like, violent, but I remember seeing it as a kid and just being inspired. Yeah, I feel like maybe they showed portions of it mm. in class, but then mm. I don't think that's allowed in high school. Yeah, I don't think I ever saw it. Anyway, oh yeah, well anyway, uh, Daniel Morgan, he's he was a huge figure in, in the Revolutionary War, and uh, 
his biggest thing was be able to get a huge stream of soldiers from the community, like 90 men in like 10 days to enlist and help with the fight. So that's kind of the, the section of the Patriot that uh, Mel Gibson is inspired from. Hmm. Uh, Harry's parents, Corbin and Martha, were married in 1886 and had a total of 10 children together. So uh, I believe Harry had six sisters and three brothers. Okay. And he at a young age, had a natural knack for music. His older sister, Gertie, began teaching him to play uh, guitar at the age of six, and he quickly jumped from guitar to anything with strings, essentially. So he was playing piano and fiddle and things like that. It is weird to think, though, about the piano as a string instrument. Yeah. I mean, maybe not for you, but you don't play the piano like you you play the guitar. Yeah, you hammer the strings in a piano. (laughs) It's a percussive instrument so like harpsichord they pluck the strings right, like you would right. like a lute or a guitar uh-huh. and then piano you strike the strings like you would uh, a percussive instrument so but it is it's just i mean it's, 88 just, yeah, it's just weird to think about little the hammers fact that it's yeah. a string instrument yeah. that's funny i guess i've always yeah you're just i mean you you majored in school <laughs> in music theory so yeah. you're like a duh this is a string instrument yeah. and i i also like like prepared piano where you do things to the strings and like put screws between them to make really extra percussive noises so any music nerds out there like john cage style that oh i love that stuff anyway (laughs) harry was just a, a born rambling man he's a wanderer and luckily for him the rock island railroad was really close to their house and so he could easily just hop on a train and go to another town and you know would do whatever he wanted either it's you know little petty crimes committing little robberies or uh just staying over and meeting people and and then hopping on a train and coming home and you know he's a teenager amidst mm-hmm. the great depression mm-hmm. and so this is happening left and right mm-hmm. and a lot of people are leaving the midwest mm-hmm. and heading west and heading anywhere but their towns to find work right. and harry is not alone as he's traveling these trains and committing little crimes he's also a very passionate individual because between the ages of 17 and 21 he's married and divorced three times no yeah it's like once a year right that's many that's too many for (laughs) being that young his his first marriage at the age of 17 uh he has his one and only known son named william and uh Part of that source that I use, the article in Idaho Magazine, um, they actually interviewed William to ask about his father and and try to track this man down because he was such a prevalent traveler and such a wanderer. He didn't really, you know, he's just like a little tumbleweed. Uh, <laughs> his son kind of documenting his visits every few years. That's the only real way we kind of know as much about him as we do. Yeah. So this son also was raised by a sister because the mother was unable to, so to take care of him. So of like his maternal aunt? Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, Do you know how old the wife was by chance? I don't, but I'm imagining she's probably a teenager. <gasps> yeah. So that's that <sighs> comes up here next. Like his first incarceration is in Missouri for the charge of statutory rape. Yikes. And uh, that is at, he's at 20 years old in 1938. At one point, he even escapes from the Missouri State Penitentiary. And this penitentiary is, it was the oldest active penitentiary west of the Mississippi. And it was active between 1836 and 2004. Wow. 
Yes, and it held some of the most famous names. Charles Pretty Boy Floyd, who was like okay. a bank robber. He killed a bunch of police officers. James Earl Ray, who assassinated Martin Luther King. Uh, he was housed there. They had a gas chamber and had, uh, I believe, 40 executions at this gas chamber, wow. chamber including Ooh. one woman. Um, and it housed women from 1842 to 1926. So uh, okay. kind of a similar time span. Mm-hmm. In 1940, he is actually paroled out to join the army, which uh, it's, you know, we don't join World War II until December of 1941, until Pearl Harbor occurs. But uh, he enlists and he joins the Corps of Engineers for a three-year enlistment. But within three months, he is discharged and sent back to the prison to finish out his sentence. So he did not like being told what to do. He did yes. not like his free reign that he had. Um, yeah, his freedom was constantly short-lived. Uh, so he leaves Missouri after the, his incarceration. And the next thing we know, he's picked up in Yakima, Washington in 1944 for bodily harm to wife. And he spends 30 days in a Lewiston jail for vagrancy. And then he's investigated for an assault in Walla Walla, Washington. Mm -hmm. After that, he skips town and he crosses the border into Idaho. He goes to southern Idaho. And in the spring of 1945, he decides he's going to become a forger. And he starts passing a bunch of bad checks under the name John Zisco. Well, I have to say I like forgery a lot more than um, bodily injury to wife. Right, right. And it seems like he didn't spend it. They slapped him on the wrist for that crime compared to what he gets when he gets caught in April of 1945. He gets sentenced, literally it says, not less than two and a half nor more than 14 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Yeah, that's pretty normal, actually. Most, especially, I say honestly, up until the 1960s, forgery Mm -hmm. was like automatic 14 years. Right. Like male, female, Mm -hmm. doesn't matter. You're in for 14. Exactly. Yeah. So he arrives at the uh, Idaho State Penitentiary April 26, 1945, so just a couple weeks after he's caught. He's listed as 5 feet 10 with a ruddy complexion. He has blonde hair and blue eyes. He lists his occupation as a farmer, and he's given the number 6836. Less than four months after entering, on July 27, 1945, Harry and this 19-year-old inmate named Glenn Hunter were working outside the walls in this khaki-colored 1941 army-typed Ford dump truck with a broken radiator grill they were out there cleaning up the grounds and sometime after 3 p.m they just drive off unfortunately no guards saw which direction they drove and none of the convicts helped by pointing out where to search so guards were just basically lost Uh, a couple weeks go by and on august 4th 1945 the young inmate that went with harry uh glenn he's captured when he's spotted hiding in some sagebrush in southwest boise oh, and apparently he was searching for water he had he hadn't eaten for several days Whoa. three days later the prison warden was given the nod by the the pardon parole board to issue a 25 dollar reward for selby's capture there's a huge manhunt for him and they're hoping that one of his friends, if he has any friends, you know, he is kind of a traveling hobo. But if somebody knows him, maybe they'll turn him in. Uh, unfortunately, he gets the best <laughs> capture. It's one of my favorites. So okay. up in northern Idaho, in mm-hmm. Moscow, there is a huge convention where correctional officers and police officers are all gathering. 
And that just happens to be where Harry goes. He does not get the memo that all the bees, all the whole nest is up north. He goes up there and he is actually caught walking a street in Moscow. Uh, An officer spotted him, pulls him over, arrests him, and they bring him back to the old pen. This is very reminiscent, and I don't know if you would get this reference. Have you seen the movie, the old movie, Some Like It Hot? I haven't, no. It's amazing, you should, um, because it's about these two uh, musicians who witnessed the St. Valentine's Day massacre, and then they go on the run from the mob by dressing as women, (laughs) and little do they know, this this band stand that they're playing in Florida, there's a a gangster's convention, and so the people that they're running from end up being in this hotel, so when you said that, it just reminded me of that. It's the best movie. It's so good. You should watch it. It's from 60... yeah. 66, 65. Mm. I think it's 65. Marilyn what? Monroe's in it. Oh. Uh, Tony Curtis, Jack Lemon. Very good. Very good. Very All good. right. I there's there are other comparisons in this uh, article to Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Oh, also um, a good so, movie. Yeah, yeah. Of all the places he could have run to, he could have gone any direction. <laughs> anywhere, anywhere. Like... Oh, I bet he thought the same thing where he was just like, I'm sorry, are you serious? <laughs> are you kidding me? Are you, yeah. are, are you kidding it's, me right now? It's funny that the uh the newspaper comments on it about you know, how funny is it that this escape convict headed north? So right. I love totally. That. Yeah. That's funny. So on his, upon his return to prison, Harry settles into prison life, and he seems to, I don't know, settle down, but they also take away his trusty status. Yep. So he's that kind of sense. in the walls, and he starts playing music again. And then he meets two other musicians who were both interested in making cowboy music, okay. and they're named Lester Johnson, number 5711, and William Bill Hicks, number 6936. And these two men were also... They had long rap sheets. They were outlaws. And they had, you know, armed robbery and forgeries. William Hicks was serving his second-degree murder charge for killing an Elmore County sheep herder uh, in 1937. And he wouldn't be released until 1953. So he's in there for, uh, he's feeling like for good. Mm-hmm. So when he meets Harry Sylvie, I bet he's pretty excited to start picking up his guitar and start singing again. He's a natural musician, Bill Hicks says, who played five instruments by ear. Oh. And Lester wasn't a musician, but he was a songwriter, and he had a natural knack for coming up with melodies. Cool. And, you know, these are all kind of folky melodies. Sure. So it's, they aren't complex sorts of right. things, but uh, still fantastic. And Lester had actually served a stint in Alcatraz in the 1920s Whoa. when it was still a military prison uh, for being charged oh. with the desertion from the military. So, Thanks. yeah, early days there. Uh, in the summer of 1947, Harry, Bill, and Lester were permitted to purchase recording equipment, and it isn't known where they found the funds or why Ward and Luke Clapp agreed to it, but they got this equipment set up, and it's likely the first actual designated recording studio in the state of Idaho, here at the Idaho State Penitentiary. That's cool. And I, you know... It's a precedence to what is right. happening right now. It's amazing. Yeah. Our, our recording ancestors, these men. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, this, this recording equipment would cut little plastic records at 45 RPM. And basically, you know, two songs, one side and, and a right. back side. And the very first song is Harry Sylvie's song, Away from Whiskey, Wild Women, and Beer. And on the back side of it is a song called Sylvie's Talking Blues. You know, I have the lyrics, so mm-hmm. this is this is fascinating to me. Here's how the song goes.
sharps, forgers, and racketeers. Come on, sit down over here. Well, I'll tell you my story of heartaches and woes. Well, away from whiskey, wild women, and beer. For the governor, I was working down Amber Way. Living my life with my Bessie dear. But we cashed a few checks that they said was no good. Well, away from whiskey, wild women, and beer. The DA said, Fisco, you'll take the rap. I'll see to it that you just get a year. So they turned Bessie loose, sent me up the river. Well, away from whiskey, wild women. like a year then young man you'll be right out of here the judge he said to it one half to fourteen well away from whiskey wild women and beer the warden he said you used too many names which one do you plan to use while you're here this it's this classic kind of cowboy mm-hmm. you know it's a country song totally. it's it's got the whole arc of you know this outlaw commits this crime he takes the rap for something that his his girl does and then she ends up leaving him while he's serving time so sad uh the interesting thing about this those lyrics that i just read for you is that uh they were gathered up in like 2009 2010 Gary Eller, he's he's a local musician, mm-hmm. and he was given this Idaho Humanities Council grant to travel across the state and gather these historic songs from all these different towns and mining unions and chants and all all folk songs. And you know, sometimes he would record these old folk singers who were near their deathbeds and things like that. So, and he worked with like Rosalie Sorrells, mm-hmm, who's a famous mm-hmm. uh, Idaho folk musician, and. She actually does the voice of the women in Doing Time, right? Yeah. The women's section. Yeah. I would like to change. A bitterness in my heart. 
the uniforms on the guards. <laughs> the like loneliness of my bed. <laughs> <laughs> I like to change myself. <laughs> We've seen that video many, many times. It's Can you classic, tell? Yeah. You should watch it if you haven't. It's great. So Gary went around trying to track this song down. There's no known records uh, surviving mm. to this day. And so he found John Larson, who basically, with his friend Pat Gibson, recreated the song because they were teenagers in the 1940s. And they remember waiting for that song to come on and listening to it. It's that same thing. It's the counterculture. They wanted to hear this outlaw sing his song. So it got played you know, like on the radio. It got it got played all oh, over the well, South, Southern Idaho. Oh, because they that record. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. And, and crazy, crazier than that. They would actually send Harry to local radio stations, and he would perform it live on air. Wow. While he was incarcerated. Exactly. Yeah. So there is a recording that was recreated in in December of 2009. It was released on an album called Idaho Song Bag in 2010, and it's Gary Eller and John Larson singing this song. It's the only... And they try to recreate the melody from what they remember, but this is from 1947, a teenage boy. Jeez. You know, this man is is trying to recreate this thing. It's it's just a, it's such an amazing, yeah. interesting, fascinating story that I love. Part of the reason why I think that this no longer exists is because Harry got pretty darn popular in town in, in southern Idaho here. And it leads to his early parole. A bunch of people write in on his behalf to be released. And the uh, the prisoner newspaper called The Clock references his performances regularly. And, and this is an article from September 1947 called The Working Guy. Every time we hear one of Sylvie's or Sylvie and Hicks's recordings over one of the local radio stations, we cannot help but marvel at the vast amount of energy and ingenuity that made these recordings possible. The recording project was born about the middle of last October and proceeded slowly until the first few months of this year when it really began to click. People from all over this part of the country have come to make a record or to buy some of the multitude of record selections that these boys have in stock or can make at a moment's notice. A great deal of these records are original, written by one or the other of the owners, and all of them, original or otherwise, have that certain zest that is taking hold so spontaneously. After permission had been given to send original recordings to station KCID, requests began to pour in from all over Idaho for information as to where these records could be procured, and as soon as the information had been announced over this station, orders poured in and are still pouring in at a steady stream. The local stations have received hundreds of requests for Sylvie's Talkin' Blues, a homespun favorite, which we think is exceptionally good, and may obtain national recognition in the future, and Whiskey Wild Women and Beer, another original that has really taken hold and promises to sell unlimited numbers of records. Visitors to the institution are permitted to make their own recording, and the boys will furnish musical background for any type of record that is desired, as their library contains any number that is popular or has been popular in years past. Many of these visitors are coming back and bringing friends to make recordings because of the splendid manner in which they are treated, and because these boys have gone out of their way to make friends and establish a reputation, and we feel that they have done so and can make a good living when they are released through the friendships they have made. However, this project has not been all done so easily. To begin with, the boys racked up enough money to make a down payment on their recorder radio combination. And we don't know yet how they managed to swing it, which is now all paid off. 
They then began to save toward a fine electric guitar system and other instruments that were necessary for recording. These have been bought and paid for also. Since the records were quite expensive, these have been purchased from almost every available source and will soon be bought by the thousand lot, so as to make more profit forthcoming on each. See what can be done with an ounce of gold and a ton of energy? It's a great little article detailing the ingenuity of, of Hicks and Sylvie. Finally, on January 26, 1948, he's released, and he heads to Idaho City to return to his love, Bessie, who's named in that song. Her real name was Bessie? Yeah, yeah. Aww. And, you know, he's given the conditional pardon not to, basically a parole to not break any laws and don't touch any alcohol. Um, unfortunately, just like his song, Bessie had moved on since 1945, since he had been incarcerated for about three years, and... Harry arrives to see Bessie with another man, this biker, and uh-uh. Harry loses his temper. He beats and stabs the man. Uh. He's arrested and charged as a parole violator. I don't understand what he expected because, like, literally in the song, he, I, like, essentially told her what to do. You know, and I, I think that he he was a passionate fellow. I think he thought, as soon as he's released, she'll come back to me. Like, you know, I'm... I'm Harry Sylvie. Everybody knows my name now. And listen, right? he's not unattractive. He's not an unattractive young <laughs> man. Yeah. Warden Clapp basically tells him, you know, you have a chance of serving your total maximum sentence of 14 years in the institution. I'm also taking away any of your popularity. He takes away the recording studio and he bans any recorded or live performances of Sylvie's song. Whoa. And there's this like folk tale that they reference in these blog posts and in this article about it being a misdemeanor to perform this song. Like, Whoa. you know, but I, there's, there's no, I, I couldn't find anything. And they even, they dig a bunch of digging to see if there was a rule in the books anywhere. I think right. it was just like Warden Clapp is saying this yeah. is illegal. And everybody yeah. is, yep. All right, Warden Clapp. Okay. We trust you. <laughs> Pretty much, he burned all these bridges, and that means he gets to sit in prison and probably still play guitar and do his things, but uh, he doesn't have an audience anymore. So mm-hmm. he's he's released September 4th, 1951. So he spends about a total of six years at the institution. Our next reports indicate that he married a woman in 1954, and then basically through his son's understanding, his rendition, his dad never stopped being a tumbleweed and just rambling across the country mm. and bouncing from place to place. And every once in a while, he would go down to California to the base that William was stationed at and hang out with him for a while and then kind of jet off somewhere else. Mm. I don't know. This is kind of sad, but uh, I think it's kind of a natural ending to him. Sure. He dies at the age of 57 on January 10th, 1976, in a Spokane hotel. And he is buried. This is his gravestone oh, wow. here um in fairmont memorial park in that city what a fascinating fascinating story and huh. this gary eller and john larson they're they're right up on his life and crimes and everything else and you know they they write all about lester lester, lester. johnson and bill hicks it, it's so thorough it's so well done so i i man i really support them. is there a link that we can put on our facebook page yeah or... actually so they have this their recording that live recording from 2010 album idaho song bag uh online so i'll link that in our facebook group yeah and this article so you can see all the photos that they include that they collected from the the sylvie family 
and these other other families. So, I mean, it's it's amazing. And we also have uh, sheet music that was sent to Bill Hicks. So I, I might actually do another whole episode just on Bill Hicks' story because mm. it's mm-hmm. pretty fascinating. A guy named Burt Gamble, a local local guy in, in Idaho, wrote these lyrics to mm-hmm. a song and sent them to this inmate, to Bill Hicks, and said, hey, would you write music to this? And so Bill actually responds with this beautiful letter kind of saying, you know, this this is really beautifully done. I didn't have to change a word. Your syllables were like perfect. The multisyllabic. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it, it was just such a musical thing. And so he sent him the sheet music back and it says uh, words by Burt Gamble and uh, music by Bill Hicks. So hmm, kind of interesting. Really neat. Yeah. From November of 1947 when that recording studio was done. So that, you know, that wow. could be also one of these missing records so if you have somebody who's an idaho native and they have collected records their whole lives go <laughs> dig through their records and see if you can see the name bill that'd be bill hicks cool. harry sylvie idaho state penitentiary any of that well, i would love that'd be really cool to recreate that and get that out into the world because it's it's just such a fascinating story and i wish i knew for sure uh what sort of recording equipment yeah. They purchased and, and where they got well, the and money. Well, and I was going to say, yeah. I would imagine it would be expensive. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I huh. mean, just the equipment we're recording on yeah. in 2019, this, yeah. is, this is expensive yeah, material it's not cheap. now. Yeah. It's never been For sure. inexpensive. It's it's a specialized thing. So. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Ooh. Very so, cool. Yeah, Harry Sylvie. I feel, as a musician, so connected with this mm-hmm. guy in some ways and, you know, it's something that I aspired to as a young man before right. I had any, you know, full-time job and right. all those things. So, yeah, it's he, he lived that dream of, of being a, a tumbleweed. I love it. That's very cool. Huh. <laughs> Once again, this is a story I did not know. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, it's a fun one. Cool. Yeah. Nice guy. Okay. Please like and follow our Facebook page, Old Idaho Penitentiary. From there, you can connect with us directly by joining the Behind Gray Walls podcast group, where you can find the mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, supplementary images of the penitentiary, and discussions between group members. We'd love to see you there. So today, I am talking about Mildred Louise Knox. Her story, for some reason, like, as I was reading hers, like, just really pulled on my heartstrings and she like kind of became my favorite and like her mugshot I don't know I don't know what it was but just something about her I just like she just immediately became my favorite like so I'm excited to share this with you on our first episode of the second season because I think her story is really interesting and again she does have a very uh, a tie a musical tie a little bit Mm. I don't know that much about her musical abilities but We'll get into that in just a second. Yay, so, I'm excited. Um, sources, inmatefileancestry.com. You'll hear this with me pretty much every time. Um, I needed to look up the history of Kimberly, Idaho. So I got that history from cityofkimberly.org. Mm. And I did also use Wikipedia, but it, it cited the 2010 census. So that's really kind of the main mm-hmm. source there. So... Mildred Louise Knox, number 8676. She was born Mildred Palmer on December 24th, 1924 in Eaton, Colorado, which is the northern part of Colorado, uh, east of Fort Collins, if you know where that is. I spent a lot of time in Fort Collins. 
when I was in, in Wyoming because there's nothing to do in Laramie. So oh. we went to FOCO instead. Um, her parents were George and Nora Palmer. She had two older siblings, Lowell, who was five years older than she was, a brother, and Margaret, who was two years older than her. She remembered a really happy home. Her father sold stock and fruit. Her mother was sort of strict in terms of religion, but overall, everyone was happy. Everyone got along. Uh, everyone was well taken care of. She grew up in rural Colorado, and in the early 30s, the family moved to Jerome, Idaho. And again, we don't know that exact year because in 1930, they were in Colorado. In 1940, they were in Jerome. And it said that in 1935, their home was Jerome. And so it was in the early 1930s that they moved. She quit school in eighth grade. She was about 14 years old. And around this same time, in October 1939, she married Paul Russell Irwin, who was six years her senior, making him about 20. Um, he, he went by Russell, not by Paul. The young couple lived with Mildred's parents, probably because she was 14 and he was young. Their daughter, Carrie, was born in 1940, a year after their marriage. So again, Mildred is 15. Mm. It happens a lot. I don't know why I continue to be like upset by it, but I feel that I will always continue to be upset by anyone younger than like 17 having a baby. It's too young. How old was he again? He was six years older than her. So by the time their baby was born, he was 21. So it's not like he was, it's not, it's not a Josie and and, uh, John situation, but it's still, it's technically illegal. It is, it is illegal now. Yeah. So Russell was a bad provider. He just worked common labor jobs, but he didn't work hard at them. Obviously, I'm not here to say that common labor jobs are bad, but he was bad at them. He just didn't work hard. Uh, Mildred said another reason they they didn't have a good marriage was because her mother was always interfering, probably because she was 15. Mm -hmm. And she admitted that she was too young when she got married, that she didn't know how to cope with the problems of of a marriage, the fights that come up how to deal with that. They always call it in these inmate files, marital adjustment that she just couldn't adjust to it. Cause mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but at 15, I for sure could not handle like living with another human and like dealing with another human's like flaws and positives. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm 26 and I still can't, like I'm still <laughs> learning how to do it. So, uh, they separated in, in August, 1941 and they divorced soon after They didn't speak after the divorce. Her mother believed that Russell was killed during World War II, Mm. but they weren't sure. That was just kind of a hearsay thing that they had heard. uh, On July 25th, 1942, Mildred married Ivan Bud Knox in Idaho Falls. Their daughter, Penny, was born in 1943. The couple separated when Penny was 11 months old because Mildred claimed, quote, Bud beat Penny on the bottom and she couldn't stand this brutality and left him. He, She claims he was mean with her and the baby too, although he did treat Carrie okay. So perhaps uh, physically abusive. I mean, I don't know why you would need to spank an 11-month-old, so that could have been something there. So she left. Obviously, they divorced soon after their separation. There are not many reports of Mildred between 1944 and 1952, 1953. She's probably just living her life, raising her daughters. Mm -hmm. She was supposedly arrested in Salt Lake City in 1943 for board of health and disorderly conduct, which usually is either a venereal disease or a prostitution charge, especially a board of health, especially in Salt Lake is generally what that means. Mm -hmm. And it was supposedly under the name Penelope Day Sanders, but this is very strange. She never uses this name again. 
I wonder if like her fingerprints were just too close to this person who was arrested with that because she this is not something this is not board of health prostitution venereal Mm -hmm. disease this is not something that ever pops up in her life again yeah and i would imagine she's probably living with her family so she uh, and she she was working so she wasn't desperate for money like often sex workers um tend to be or you know something like that uh so we don't know if like what the deal is there um the FBI record actually revealed that she didn't didn't admit to this arrest on her own. Uh, she was also investigated in Burley for taking money from a sailor in the Pink Elephant Tavern, uh, but she was never arrested for that. Huh. Um, so this is more plausible because mm-hmm. eventually this is what um, she's arrested for that brings her in here. So also during this time, she worked as a waitress, but she worked as a vocalist on the radio and in nightclubs. And this is what she lists as her occupation is vocalist. And uh, she sang mostly cowboy and Western ballads. So hey. this is the kind of song, uh, you know, um, oh, I forgot. Harry's kind of song is the kind of stuff she'd be singing mm-hmm. like on the radio. Wow, that's and so cool. I mean, this is about a decade later, five or six years later, but it would have been, wouldn't it have been wild if... <sighs> For whatever reason, she'd like sung his song. That, that would I, be like mind blown. That'd it be so would cool. be, yeah. It, like I said, it probably didn't, but because <laughs> I mean, she is in southern southern Idaho, so mm-hmm. this she probably actually may they have heard, like, it. heard it. Yeah. So that's cool. Wow. Um, and this fact actually got her included in the music exhibit that we did mm-hmm. a few months ago in conjunction with the Tree Fort Music Festival. She's the only inmate that we know of who for sure had something to do with music. I mentioned in the the Daisy Daisy Parsley episode that she listed her occupation as a musician, but I couldn't find anywhere mm-hmm. that she for sure did this. Uh, Mildred, on the other hand, at least like the, they seem to the authorities seem to agree that this is what she did. So that's yeah. pretty cool. Wow. Do you, I wonder? Did she like perform at the club? Is that what you said? Yeah, like, she did nightclubs and radios. Yeah, oh. radio and in nightclubs. Oh man, that's the life. I or just like I just imagine her like up on stage at like the local like steakhouse or whatever yeah. the way they do those. So that's it's pretty cool. Wow. Um, so let's get to know Mildred like a little bit better in this like interim, and the source for pretty much all of this is the social history that is taken upon her intake. So, quote, Mildred indicates that she is interested in most of the major sports, except football, is particularly interested in ice hockey. (laughs) She likes to skate, dance, ride horses, swim, fish, and hunt. Her hobby is photography or taking pictures. So she's kind of a a well-rounded lady, you know, and she's artistic artistic and and athletic and she's fishing and hunting. Very like Idaho girl. Um, She's super. I just I just love. She grew up with her mother, who was a devout member of the Assembly of God Church, and she had a preference for this church, but she wasn't an active member in it. Uh, I didn't know what this is, so if you'll forgive me for going on just like a religious uh, rabbit hole real quick. The Assembly of God is part of the Pentecostal Christian tradition. It focuses on direct personal experience of God through, quote, baptism with the Holy Spirit. The Pentecostal tradition in general commemorates the descent of the Holy Spirit on Jesus Christ. And that that uh, particular event is found in Second Acts. I, I don't know if you cared about that. I was interested in it uh, because uh, a lot of the uh, I've never uh, sometimes I haven't heard of these Assembly of God mm-hmm. is one that I had not heard of as a branch of, of Christianity. I had not heard of so. 
Now, Mildred also had an affinity for alcohol. (sighs) She became an excessive drinker starting in the early 1940s, probably around the same time she and Ivan Knox got divorced. Um, Because by the time she comes into the prison in 53, she she says that she has been uh, an excessive drinker for 10 to 12 years. She's only 28. Mm. So that means she started drinking at 18, 18. which is so young. She drank especially, quote, when angry, upset emotionally, or disgusted or discouraged with the way things were going. And it perpetuates itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. So remember this for later. This is going to come into play later. Mildred stated that in April 1953, she began living in a common-law relationship with a man named Clarence Vincent in Pocatello. I think they may have been in a relationship a little bit before. They actually met two years before this in about 1951. Um, but I think they may have had a relationship before before April. Uh, Clarence had two kids, Jody May, who was 14 and who also was married already, which I don't like, and Clarence Daryl, and he goes by the name Daryl, and uh, Daryl's 12. So Daryl had cerebral palsy. Mildred loved this family, and she especially loved Daryl. And this, I think, is the, the thing that like really got me. We talked about Dorothy Cox's son had cerebral palsy as well. And the the difference here is that this is not her direct son. Mm-hmm. This is a stepson. So Mildred spent her time caring for Daryl and his cerebral palsy, just doting on him, like doing all of this work to help him get better. Uh, this is from her intake form. It, it says, quote, she claims that when she's busy, happy, occupied, as she is living with Clarence Vincent and taking care of his little crippled son and taking care of his home, she was not bothered by a desire to drink. Mm. So while uh, Mildred is in prison, Jody May writes a letter to the warden. So forgive me, this is, I like this letter, I think kind of made me tear up a little bit. So I'm going to read most of it. So bear with me. So... Quote, Mildred Knox has stayed here with us since the middle of March 1953, which differs from from her April date, and was taking care of my brother. She has helped Daryl more than anybody, even his own mother. Daryl thinks an awful lot of Mildred. He calls her mother, and he has never mentioned his own mother. For all he thinks, Mildred is his mother. Daryl has had more response to Mildred than to anybody. Dad has had a couple women there to tend Daryl, but he never did mind them. Daryl was walking with two crutches when she came to live with us. She has helped him so much that now he's walking with one cane. His speech has improved and even his manners. Daryl needs her home with him. I think an awful lot of Mildred. She's more than a mother to me. I can talk to her whenever I have a problem and we get along just perfect. We do everything in the world together and have a lot of fun. Um, Clarence wrote as well and he says, Mildred helped Daryl a lot. It has been hard to get anybody to take care of him that would take an interest in him. Mildred seemed to take a liking to him and was interested in trying to help him. Daryl liked and minded her very much. She made a good home for him and made him feel like he was wanted and loved, which I think was a great help to Daryl because he had not had that in a long time. Mildred was very happy here with us and very good in every way. Daryl called her mom all the time. Like, is that not the sweetest thing that you've ever heard? Like, she loved this little boy and he loved her. Like, Mm -hmm. she... Worked. I like. I love the way that that Jody brings up that he was walking with two crutches 
when she came to live with us and now he just uses a cane Mm -hmm. like that's i just imagine just like every single day like mildred working Mm -hmm. with this little boy to help help him feel better yeah and and help him get literally on his feet and i just oh she seems like such a playful like and she's probably singing to him and love it doing all this great stuff it's like just talking about it like makes me tear up this was i think especially one of the first times that i realized that this project that i'm doing about uh, in in writing these women's biographies is making them human like pulling Mm -hmm. out these human qualities because she was in for grand larceny and so and it's like it's like a lot of money right that she ends up stealing and again i'll get into that but like this Oh, it just it, made my heart so happy. Yeah. So sweet. Like just the so sweetest complex. thing. Oh, gosh, yeah. I love it. Okay. So uh, we know that when she's working with Daryl, she just doesn't feel the need to drink. She's happy. She's mm-hmm. busy. She has her mind occupied. Things are going really good. Mm-hmm. But I think before she moved in with the Vincents, uh, she is probably having a little bit of trouble. So Mildred is actually arrested in Kimberly, Kimberly, Idaho, which is near Twin Falls. So here's a little bit of Kimberly history. This is very brief. Oh, but So there was a Carry Act of 1901. It was a law that allowed for the development of over 1 million acres of arid land in what is now called Magic Valley in South Central Idaho. Magic Valley consists of Blaine, Camas, Casha, Gooding, Jerome, Lincoln, Minidoka, and Twin Falls counties. The population of the Magic Valley makes up about 12% of the population of Idaho, but it also is largely agricultural. Mm -hmm. After this Carry Act, three men, Peter Kimberly, Frank L. Buell, which should be another familiar name, Mm -hmm. and James McMillan formed the Twin Falls Land and Water Company. And this company worked to make irrigation water available to these these acres, uh, which then allowed for agricultural um, expansion out there. Shortly after the irrigation tract to the land was complete, Peter Kimberly died, and his partner, James McMillan, actually founded the town of Kimberly. Wow. And he probably also founded Buell, yeah. B-U-H-L, which they're, they're some, uh, sort of close to one another. Mm-hmm. Peter Kimberly, it's named after Peter Kimberly, but James McMillan is the one who founded it. Kimberly, to this day, is mostly agricultural. The 2010 census had the population at 3,264. The estimate in 2016 was about 3,500. So, uh, Mildred is arrested in Kimberly when she is drinking with a man named Clifford Beardall in a local tavern on March 22nd, 1952. Both were intoxicated, and Mildred claimed that Clifford gave her about $4,640 in cash... Do you want to guess how much that is in like modern day? Uh, Four thousand mm-hmm. in nineteen fifty-two. I would think like twelve, twelve thousand. It is forty-four thousand eight hundred and forty-nine dollars. What? Yeah. Oh my god. He just is walking around with just like forty-six hundred dollars in cash somehow. Wow. Crazy. Wow. If I have a twenty in my pocket, I'm like. <laughs> I don't. I better not get mugged. Right, you know, I, know. Totally. <laughs> I never have cash in my pocket. I know. Whoa. I mean, granted, this is the '50s, so credit isn't quite a thing. Or yeah. if it is, it's still limited to the grocery stores. <laughs> uh, I don't imagine in a tavern they're gonna give you credit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he's just like carrying around forty six hundred dollars <sighs> in cash, and so he supposedly gives it to Mildred for safekeeping, and she just sticks it in her slacks pocket. 
After he gives her the cash, he just gets more drunk and passes out. I think if I remember correctly, she helped him get home. Like, she grabbed a taxi and, like, went home. Because, like I said, she puts the money in her sex pocket. She goes home. She goes to bed. The next day, she gets up and goes to work. In the morning, Clifford sobers up, and he goes to the bar to find this money because he knows the money is missing. Mm-hmm. And he realizes that he had been in contact with Mildred. And so he calls the police. He immediately accuses her of stealing this money. So the police arrest her at work. She tells him where the money is. It's exactly where she says it is. They go and recover it. She is charged with grand larceny for this. Wow. She pleads not guilty and probably... Because to me, if you were really trying to steal $45,000, you're not just going to be like, oh, it's in my slacks pocket at home. Yeah. You know and what then I mean? show you'd up be to like, work. You're yeah. going to hit a train gonna, like, and Yeah. Or go you're going to hide somewhere. it somewhere and be right. like, I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah. And so I feel like that, I feel like that's not an unreasonable thing that wow. she's pleading not guilty to this. Like her story was yeah. truly, he gave it to me for safekeeping. And I don't drink, but from what I can tell, when you drink, you don't tend to remember things very well. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? You don't tend to have the (laughs) the best, straightest thoughts. And so I I imagine he's probably very embarrassed that he's misplaced basically $45,000. And so he doesn't want to admit that, like, oh, I just gave it to this chick when I was drunk. Like, he probably assumed that she stole it. Mm Mm-hmm. So she pleads not guilty, but the jury finds her guilty. And she was originally actually placed on probation for two years in May 1952 because I think the judge seemed to, you know, because even though the jury finds her guilty, the judge is still in charge of sentencing. And if he feels that it's um, too harsh of a a conviction that he Mm -hmm. can give her a lesser sentence. And it also is, as far as we can tell, besides this board of potential board of health charge, it is the first time that she's ever been arrested yeah. So he just puts her on probation for two years. But in January 1953, she is arrested for intoxication in Jerome County. Oh, no. However, she is released on the promise that she's going to do better and that she's going to live her probation. She promises that she's going to do better. She's not going to get involved with drink anymore. She's she's going she's gonna to do better. So mm-hmm. they end up not arresting her, let her stay on her probation. But... She violates her probation when she leaves the Magic Valley area to resume her relationship with Clarence in Pocatello. The probation officer also stated that not only was she constantly leaving the area to go to Pocatello, but she'd frequently been found in places where liquor was sold, and she had written a fictitious check for $20, which she passed in Pocatello in March 1953. You can ignore one of those maybe two of those you can't ignore all of them you're right uh and so she and she admits to them she says like yep you're right like i did violate my parole by doing those things so she accepts the punishment so she's brought into custody on july 8th and she enters the pen on july 21st 1953 for a 14 year sentence wow her like her receiving information she is 5'6 134 pretty average sized lady she's 28 years old blue eyes dark brown hair obviously no military record these later ones aren't quite as detailed as as those early ones where it's like moderate drinker attended sunday school those sort of things but um those are her statistics and then um her her little bertillion um that marks down stuff um her teeth are good which is 
pretty good pretty pretty rare actually yeah she has an operation scar on the right side of her body i think it's an appendix yeah. if i remember right and those then, are pretty common yeah in these battalions and then she had a cesarean operation scar both of her daughters were born uh, cesarean with the mm. cesarean section so she's got a scar in her stomach from that she's got a couple other scars a vaccination scar but other than that it's not not anything too crazy mm-hmm. So when she enters uh, the prison, she and Clarence both make it clear that even though they weren't married, they actually, the day that she was arrested and sentenced was the day they were planning on getting married. And Clarence says, but I do want to marry her when she comes back out. And I wouldn't be willing to marry her if I didn't think she was a good person. Mm -hmm. During her incarceration, the family writes letters saying how much they need her and especially how much Daryl needs her. There was even a doctor from the Bannock memorial hospital who wrote and said like since she's been in the prison daryl's gotten worse he really Mm -hmm. needs her back which again is so sweet i love it so nothing else is really mentioned about her time in prison so she probably was pretty average Mm -hmm. just did what she was told didn't get into any trouble There's only one letter that the warden wrote to her mother, and he says, because uh, someone, I think her mother wrote and said, like, I feel like Mildred is is um, dealing with psychosis because of her incarceration. And he says, oh. like, actually, uh, the matron told me everyone is doing very well. Yeah. So that's pretty much that's pretty much all we know. That's all it, we get. It's probably just a, a line in her letter saying, like, I can't wait to get out of here yeah, or something, something like, like that, that which, yeah. I mean, that's pretty common. And the fact that her mother, like, wrote into the warden, ugh. Yeah, that yeah. happens so often. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, are you taking care of my son? Yeah. And well, you're thirty-six year old, you know, felon <laughs> yeah. son who committed this brutal crime. You know, is doing just fine. Right. He is just incarcerated. And in the the yeah. women's case, it tends to be a little bit more like, I totally understand why you're upset by this, but mm. there's nothing we can do. She has to serve her minimum sentence. Yeah. And, and that's what he tells her mother as well. Mm-hmm. So she may have participated in the prison AA program. I know there was a prison AA program at least in the 60s. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was common in the 50s or not. Yeah. And it, I know Lou Clapp was all about getting something for alcoholism mm-hmm. in, in this site. And he was even experimenting with like sodium pentothal and helping inmates get over their addiction right. with chemical means, which mm-hmm. is like a fascinating experiment yeah. that didn't necessarily result the way that they were hoping but right. i mean it, it expanded into a further aa program right for... and there normally is a sheet in these files that mm-hmm. will say like the the matron will write like she's a really good cook she's yeah. done her work really well and then if they participate in any of these recovery programs it'll say oh she's participated in aa attended mm-hmm. aa meetings or whatever but we don't have that for her oh, so we kind of okay. just have to assume that she probably did yeah um but we also don't know so Ultimately, Mildred behaves well enough that she is paroled on February 17th, 1954, on the condition that she seek treatment for alcoholism. She served only six months and 27 days of her sentence um, for this grand larceny. And she may, as far as I can remember, I... I've written 214 female biographies, so I may just have forgotten. But she may be the only female inmate who's actually released under this particular condition of treat of seeking treatment for alcoholism. Wow. She seemed very determined to kick her alcohol problem, and especially for the good of her family that she is part of. Sure enough, she sought treatment for alcoholism. Um, these are the only reports we have of her, and these come from December 11th, 1954. So about 10 months after she's released, um, there are four updates on her. 
And on December 8th, she gets pentothal. Patient is upset over household bills and is having a hard time making ends meet. She has no desire at this time, but I think that means she has no desire for alcohol. She's just mm-hmm. going through a hard time. Say uh, later that day, 12-8, doing fine. Family problems and financial worries, but is happy. 12-9, return in January for pentothal and February for pentothal and CRX. I don't know what that is. And then on 12-10, um, pentothal this PM, patient stated she would try to bring her husband in for a conference with Dr. Scheel. Mm-hmm. These, that's kind of the only updates we have. And pentothal, you know, we talked about, it's actually, a, it's basically a relaxation drug. Mm-hmm. Um, it's used mostly in modern day to relax people before general anesthesia. So it was probably used to help calm her down during periods of agitation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it says that she's upset over household bills and, uh, you know, that's going to freak you out. And when you freak out, you're more likely to relapse. And so getting this, uh, pentothal in her is going to help her not have the desire to go back to drink. There's some fascinating videos on YouTube of these classic, like 1950s tests, and they would put these individuals under sodium pentothal and you just see this like happiness kind of Mm -hmm. brew over them. And then they would essentially have kind of a therapy session. And their mm-hmm. whole point was to get to the root issue that causes them to drink. Right. And so that's that's probably yeah. what these sessions were. And actually, she says, and this is actually in her original intake form, mm-hmm. she thinks it's um, from the close, basically, um, smothering of her mother. Oh. Um, because her mother was super religious. And she talks yeah. about in her first marriage how her mother was like sort of always involved in their mm-hmm. marriage. And she says that like... For the most part, she does okay with her mother, but when her mom starts to get really in- inserting herself into Mildred's affairs or starts to smother her, that's when she wants to start drinking. And yeah. so she actually sort of already feels like she knows the root of this cause mm-hmm. uh, of this alcoholism. It's yeah. it's also used, it was used as truth serum because oh. often people, they would just be so relaxed and so calm mm. that they would just reveal whatever was asked yeah. of them. So when we get to like Kenneth Hastings, he's oh, the yeah. first inmate here that they use sodium pentothal as truth serum here in Idaho. And it's like one of the most fascinating ones. Okay, so because she seems to be doing well on this, she received the final discharge in March 1955. Mm. Done with prison. She uh, actually, if you notice, in this in December 10th, 1954, she actually calls Clarence her husband. But oh. their official marriage record is not until um, March 1957. But I also found another one that said March 1958. Oh. So uh, the probably common law. Um, she took his last name because her name on this report is Mildred Knox Vincent. <laughs> but Mildred and Clarence actually divorced in December 1958. Clarence cites extreme cruelty as the reason for their divorce Um, he cites it he cites it he actually gets Mm. he's the one who files and she doesn't contest it i wonder the only thing i can think of is i wonder if she perhaps got back on alcohol and it became a problem which is with the family yeah, yeah relapse yeah so the records of her are sort of sparse after this. Social security records state by December 1964, her name was Mildred Nystrom, but I couldn't find records of this marriage. Here's, an, here's a weird thing. This is another weird thing. This is where the uh, records are so fascinating. In 1963, Clarence marries a woman named Elaine Nystrom. Same last name. What? Yeah. How? Right? weird Ah, okay and so i was like well maybe she just like changed her name and they got remarried but this on the marriage record this elaine was born in like i think she was from idaho and was a different 
birthday all together. So maybe they were like good friends yeah. and like Elaine had a brother. I don't know. Isn't that weird? That is very strange. So weird. Okay. So huh. if there was a marriage, it probably ended in divorce. Yeah. By November 1973, her name is listed as Mildred Louise Barnes. She married Robert Wendell Barnes. Not sure if it was in November or if it was sometime before then. That's the hardest part about these social security indexes mm-hmm. is it'll just like list the date that their name is listed as that, whether or not that's from a record with, or yeah. just like if they applied for disability or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's the hardest part with that. Um, she and Robert lived in Casha County, probably the Burley area. Mm-hmm. And Mildred Louise Barnes, or our Mildred Louise Knox, died in Casha County on June 29th, 1999. She was 75 years old. She is buried in the Standrod Cemetery in Malta, Idaho, which is uh, only a couple miles from Burley. Mm-hmm. She shares the headstone with Robert, and um, wow. he died in November 1999. Aww. So they only died a few years apart. He was only a couple months older than her. So yeah. uh, they were married the longest uh, for at least 20, almost 25 years, if not longer than that. Um, her two daughters' names are actually on the back of their headstone as well. Um, so she really did care for her kids. Yeah. And as we saw even her stepkids which again i'm just so in love with that whole thing and here's an extra tidbit uh right last minute research uh revealed that daryl lived in idaho for the rest of his life and he died in 2010 oh wow i wonder if they ever reconnected or he probably thought about her a lot Mm. yeah wow what a good so that is Mildred Knox, who just has a very, very dear place in my heart yeah. for a, a reason I cannot pinpoint, but it doesn't matter. She's a complex human being, she just is. like everybody yeah. we've researched here. We mm-hmm. keep thinking we're just going to find a creep and like, oh, yeah, I hope he stayed the rest of his life yeah. in prison. And you're like, oh, he was orphaned yeah. from a murder-suicide yeah. or, you know, like yeah. all these different stories that we come across. Mm-hmm. And this is such a prime example of that. Wow. Good research, guy. Thank you. Great story. Thank you. Wow. All right. Well, that was our musical episode. Welcome to season two, everyone. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, do your own time. Do your own number. See you next week. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.